How many of you would label yourself as a runner? Show of hands. <laughs> From what? <laughs> Touche, Roger. Uh, those who like to run, show of hands. Weirdos. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm not a big runner. Uh, I enjoy running. I, I, I like running on occasion. But uh, in fact, Bill Hilligans, Pastor Bill, you, you do, how many marathons do you do a year? Like two or three, right? Okay. We'll say two or three. I mean, 26.2 miles. I get tired when I drive 26.2 miles. So for you runners, I really just have one question. Why? No, really, like, people run for all kinds of, of different reasons, and they're great. You know, some people run because they want to ditch the dad bod and exchange it for beach bod. Some people run because they want to eat whatever they want and not gain weight. Some people run because uh, they want to prolong their life and they want to be here for their kids. So maybe that's more of a fear reason rather than a benefit reason. And then you have those people who run because they just love it. You know, they're like, the breeze, I love it when I run and the breeze hits my face and it whips through my hair. And, and as I, you know, every momentary stride, I love the, the sensation of soaring as my feet hit the pavement, as my heart pounds in my chest, adrenaline courses through my veins, I feel alive. That's a person who loves running. In the early 80s, there was this movie, Chariots of Fire. Do you guys remember that movie? True story. I'm talking about Eric Liddell. Most people remember that movie because of, you know, slow motion running with the dun, 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 Anyway. So Eric Liddell, true story, came from a missionary family, became an Olympic runner, and gave it up to be a missionary, I believe in China. And someone asked him, why do you run? And he said, because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. That's a man who loves to run. So why run? You can run out of fear. You can run out of benefits. Or you can run out of love. Why do we obey God? I hope it's not out of fear. I mean, we are to fear him. But I hope it's not like fear, of, oh, I don't want to displease him. or I, I, I have to earn his approval, earn his love, earn his pleasure. That's not true. I hope it's not benefits, the benefits we receive. Because the greatest motive of all is this love. Turn to John chapter 14. We are continuing our series in the gospel of John, and I just have to tell you guys, so on weeks where there's live preaching at every campus, we talk about the text. We collaborate together, and I'm looking at this Friday morning. I, I'm sitting there. I'm in my living room, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this, and then I got an email from Pastor Ben at HP and Pastor Steve at the Crown Point campus, and they were like, Guys, are you struggling with this passage? I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. I'm not the only one wrestling with this. There is so much complexity to this passage. So many layers of intense depth and intrinsic truth. So I ask you, show me some grace. Be patient because there's a lot to unpack here. So John chapter 14, verse 18. This is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now remember, you go back to verse 1, and you have the disciples filled with trepidation, filled with anxiety, because Jesus says, I'm about to leave you, and where I go, you can't follow. 
Jesus, we've been following you for three years. We've seen the miracles and the incredible teachings, and you are the Messiah. What do you mean we can't follow you? And so they are rightfully distraught. Their, char- their hearts are troubled. And Jesus says, I am departing, meaning his death. I'm about to go to the cross. And yes, you can't follow, but don't let the tempest of your heart rage. Why? Because though I am departing, I'm not leaving you. I will not leave you as orphans. You know, back in the day, in ancient times, in the Roman Empire, if people had a baby they didn't want, maybe there was a birth defect or something, or they just, it was an unwanted baby, very often they would leave the baby in a field or on the side of a road and out of sight, out of mind. And when you leave a baby to fend for itself, folks, that's a death sentence. I mean, what are you like, oh, okay, well, baby, go get a job, get a college degree. No, this baby lacks complete self-sufficiency. There's nothing the baby can do, not even close, unable to care for him or herself, completely dependent on others. Babies need the love and care of a parent, of a guardian to live. By the way, 2,000 years ago, Christians stepped up and they took these unwanted babies into their home. They adopted them and loved and cared for them as their own, these precious souls, which is part of why we are at Bethel a pro-life church. And as a pro-life church, we carry on the legacy for 2,000 years. It's part of why we have a foster and adoption group at Bethel, which, by the way, meets at this campus at Cedar Lake, so foster and adoptive parents can support each other, pray for each other, encourage each other, dig into God's word. We celebrate that, right? We celebrate that, right, church family? But the point Jesus is making is, is this. Jesus does not abandon his people. He adopts them. Yes, he would depart. Yes, he would die. Yes, things would seem bleak and hopeless, at least for a few days. But he loves them. He doesn't leave them to fend for themselves, nor does he leave you in your moment of need. And I know some of you are feeling like, okay, then where is he? Because I don't feel like he's here. I don't feel like he's near. I feel like he's left me. He hasn't. No matter how we feel, he doesn't leave you in your moment of need. Jesus says, I will come to you. I will. I want you to, in your copy of the scriptures or on your phone, highlight or underline the word will every time you see it through chapter 14. Jesus says it often. Will is a key repetitive promise word. I will do this. I will do this. You will do. This will happen. You know, he says, look at this passage. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 19, you will see me. You will live. Verse 20, you will know. Verse 21 through 23, you will love. You will obey. These are promises that we can take to the bank. And so Jesus is undoubtedly referring to his resurrection here. I will come to you. Because for 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he's appearing to his disciples. But there's another deeply powerful, intrinsic truth here. Not leaving orphans implies permanency. It's not like Jesus would appear before his disciples for 40 days and then be like, all right, now I'm leaving you. Now you're on your own, sorry. No, no, that would be a temporary fix at best. But Jesus gives a permanent solution initiated 
by his resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead would be the catalyst. Jesus would come to them and he comes to us permanently through the person and care of the Holy Spirit. You guys may not realize this, but uh, my wife, Skye, was adopted. Uh, she was adopted at birth. And in all my years of knowing her, I have never once heard her refer to her parents as her adoptive parents. Never once. They're just her parents. And I know every adoption story is different, but for Skye, her parents are her parents, not her adoptive parents. In fact, they're so much her parents, they might as well, as well have been her birth parents. And that's the whole point. Her birth mom handed her over and trusted her parents to love and care for Skye as if her birth mom was loving and caring for Skye. The birth parent hands a baby over to the loving care of another who is like an extension of the birth parent. One who has such a heart for the child that they are a true parent. Jesus is saying, I love you. Listen to me, church. I love you. He says, I love you. You are not, you will not be an abandoned orphan. I'm entrusting you into the care of one who has my loving heart for you. One who is so like me that we could even call him the spirit of Christ. And in fact, the New Testament, I believe six times at least, refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of his son. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we see this. Romans chapter 8, you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures or on the screen, but verse 14, listen. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, go back up to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you see several things here. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of life. He brings life through the redemption and righteousness that we have only in Jesus. He brings life. He's not a spirit of death. He's the Spirit of life. Over and over in the Old Testament and New, God would reassure his people when they were filled with trepidation by saying this, you see this phrase over and over, do not fear for I am with you. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm not abandoning you. In fact, I will be with you through the Holy Spirit. So through the Holy Spirit, this is the next point, through the Holy Spirit, the resurrected, exalted Jesus is with you now. Verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. He's saying very shortly, in fact, extremely shortly, because it'd be the next day Jesus would go to the cross. He would die, he'd be buried, and so the world would not physically see him. But, look what he says, but you will see me. 
Again, Jesus is referring to the resurrection. I may be dead to the world, but you will see me again. The world will think I'm gone, never to be seen again, but you will see me. Though I die, yet will I live. How beautiful is that? Not even death itself could separate our shepherd from his sheep, our Lord and master from his subjects, our God from his people. Not even death could separate us. Jesus could send the Holy Spirit because of his resurrection. Have you ever done a a love languages quiz? Like the five love languages? My lowest by far is gift giving. I mean, Christmas is awful for me. (laughs) Actually, I like receiving gifts. That's, That's nice. But I'm not the best, who doesn't? I'm not the best gift giver. But in all my years, when I've received gifts, I've never in my life received a gift from a dead man. Because dead people don't give gifts. Do you know why? They don't send anything because they're dead. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit because he is resurrected. Look what he says. Because I live, because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus was raised to life, we too have life. And so we look back at Romans 8. That's why The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of life. Literally, physically, we will rise from the dead. If you trust in Jesus, you will rise from the dead. Death has no claim on you. The grave has no claim on you. You have life in Jesus. The same power that conquered the grave lives in me, lives in us, lives in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, we were dead. He made us alive. So because he rose and lives forever, we by faith live forever in him. Life conquers the grave. Literally, physically, and proverbially, metaphorically. The death in your life due to sin is conquered by the one who conquered death and the spirit of life resides in you. Yeah, but Jared, I'm so overwhelmed with shame with guilt, with my past, with addiction, with my struggle, with habitual sin, with indwelling sin. Nope. That sounds like death talking. God is the God of the living. He is the resurrection and the life. Look at verse 20. In that day, in what day, Jesus? At the resurrection, God's power over the grave was displayed. In that day, they realized that nothing can keep Jesus down, not even death itself. In that day, it was made completely manifest that Jesus is God. So you think sin, guilt, and shame will separate you from him? Look at the lengths he went to to give you life. The resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit are so deeply connected and intertwined. After Jesus rose from the dead, for 40 days, he appears before his disciples, and then he ascends to the Father, where he then sends the Holy Spirit to come and indwell his people. Out of love for us, the Father sent his Son. Out of love for us, the Son sent his Spirit. So through the Spirit, because of the resurrection, he revives dead hearts and imparts life here and now. 
He also helps us grasp who Jesus is. Look what he says. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Now, this was covered extensively two weeks ago in verses 8 through 11. But just a quick recap. Jesus and the Father are so alike that they are one. Their unity is absolute, incapable of growth. They cannot be more unified than they are. Perfectly one and yet distinct. And this is true of the Holy Spirit as well. One God, not three gods, we are not polytheists, we're monotheists. One God, eternally existent in three persons. In fact, look at this diagram up here. I thought this was so good. I didn't create this, I found this online. It's so good. Look at all the connections here. So the Father is not the Son nor the Holy Spirit, but the Father is God. The Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Father nor the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. But the Holy Spirit is in the Son, who is in the Father, and the Father glorifies the Holy Spirit, who glorifies the Son, who glorifies the Father. Do you see all these incredible connections? There's a unity of essence, divine essence. And Jesus is saying here, if you know me, you know the Father because I embody everything about the Father. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God. Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh. We celebrate that at Christmas time. Jesus is God revealing himself to us, perfectly representing all that the Father is. Now, here's where it's going to really blow your mind. Are you guys ready for this? You don't look ready. Are you ready for this? He then says, Jesus then says, okay, you will know that I am in my Father and you will know that you are in me and I am in you. Okay, I don't see a lot of minds blown. I don't see hardly any mouths agape. So I think we need to unpack this a little bit. Theologians call this the mutual indwelling. You in Jesus and Jesus in you. Our oneness with Jesus in many ways mirrors the oneness of Jesus with the Father. Whoo! So someone who follows Jesus by faith is so intertwined, so unified, so connected with Jesus that it's as if we become one with Jesus. We call that union with Christ. That's me in Jesus, you in Jesus. Our identity, our character, our heart, our lifestyle increasingly becomes so tinctured, so infused, so flavored with Christ-likeness that we become more like Jesus. We are being molded into the image of Christ, and we are in union with Christ. Now, how is that possible? The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus in me. So, Jesus in you. So, you and Jesus, that's union with Christ. Jesus in you, that's the Spirit of Jesus. And if the Spirit is an extension so to speak, of who Jesus is, the embodiment and representation of the essence of Jesus, then just as Jesus, the Son of God, is the representative, perfect embodiment of God the Father, then it stands to reason that the Spirit in me is making me more like Jesus, not in divine essence. We don't become God, but in divine character, godly character. Or to say it another way, the spirit of Jesus is molding us into people who live like Jesus. This is actually one of the primary roles and assignments of the spirit. He makes us like Jesus. Now, last few verses, let's wrap it up. Verse 21. 
Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I'll manifest myself, reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In these chapters of John, Jesus repeats himself several times. Not because he's disorganized, not because he's scatterbrained and all over the place. You repeat yourself when something's important, right? When something's important, you repeat yourself. Now, this is one of those instances. Look at verse 15, which we looked at two weeks ago. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And now here, Jesus says, anyone who has and keeps my commandments. To have and to keep. Anyone can have the commandments of God. Anyone can intellectually know the Ten Commandments, the words of Jesus, the word of God, but do nothing with them. This is have and keep. It's more than intellectually knowing a list of commandments, being able to recite them, locking them away in a safety deposit box for safekeeping. This is you know and treasure Jesus' words so much that his commandments His expectations for his disciples are fully integrated into the way you live. This is not following a bunch of rules. It is conforming your way of life to his. And so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, loves Jesus. I mean, he's wild about Jesus. He absolutely adores Jesus. He can't stop talking about Jesus. You ever been around someone who is just in love? They're like, oh, I'm so in love with someone, you know, their significant other. And they, they, did you see what he was wearing? Oh, did you see, did you hear what she said? And you're just like, okay, I get it. You love him or her, right? There's all about that person. They're all about their beloved. They won't shut up about their beloved because they're in love. They want everyone to know about that love. They want everyone to know about their beloved. The Holy Spirit can't stop pointing to Jesus. He can't help but point Christians to Christ. He reveals Jesus to dead hearts. He reminds us of Jesus and his words. We'll look at that next week, verse 26. The Spirit, you know, we say at Bethel, it's all about him, Jesus. The Spirit is all about him. And so someone who deeply loves another will trust that person. They're going to follow their guidance, their direction, because they know that person, and they love that person, and they trust that person, and they know that that person loves them and will do what's best for them. I, you know, when I was a kid, I remember my parents would say something to me that I swore I would never, ever use that as a parent. I'm a parent now of two little girls, two daughters. And uh, this actually literally happened last week. Our oldest, Genevieve, I told her to do something. I don't, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was like, hey, sweetie, can you go upstairs and clean your room? And she goes, why? <laughs> like, so I don't wring your little neck, <laughs> is what I wanted to say. Whoo, you want to set a parent off, that's what you say. Why? You even kind of had a little like, why? Oh, mm. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I knew what I didn't want to say. 
but it just couldn't help it. I, it couldn't help bubbling out. What did I say that my parents said to me all the time? Because I, ah, yes, because I said so. Now, is that a valid reason? Technically, yes. That is a good reason. Technically, that should be reason enough because kids are to honor their parents. It's literally one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, Ephesians 6 says it's the only commandment that comes with a promise, which Deuteronomy 5 says that your days may be long and that it may go well with you. Yeah, so your parents don't wring your little neck. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the things that parents say to kids, eat your veggies, don't run into the street. We're not buzzkills. These are not rules for rules' sake. They are commands to ensure life, to prolong life, to promote good life. Loving parents want what is best for their kids. They want a good, long, fruitful life for them. So they're not going to give them commands that will be a detriment. They give direction to help, not harm, because they love their children. So I was thinking about it this week, and I told Sky this. We're going to try this, and if you're a parent, you can try this as well. And if it blows up, you can blame it on me. But what if instead of saying, because I said so, what if we said, because I love you? Go clean your room. Why? Because I love you. That's powerful, right? If they know us, they love us, they trust us, and they know that we love them, they'll obey. So again, if one has the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of Jesus loves Jesus, then naturally the spirit helps us to love Jesus. And if one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to make us more like Jesus, then out of love for Jesus, we obey Jesus because we trust Jesus and know that his commands are not burdensome, they are for our good. Apart from the spirit, obedience is impossible. We need him. I need him. You need it. We need his power. We need his guidance. We need his grace. We need his reminders of Jesus. See, a person without, uh, a, person, a person shows that they have the Holy Spirit by obeying Jesus. That's the evident demonstration of your love for Jesus. It's obedience to him. It's putting God's word into practice in your life. To put it another way, to love the Lord is to obey the Lord. People always do what they love. People will always obey what they love and if you want to say it that way, our patterns of obedience reveal what we love. So if someone loves Jesus, they're going to keep his word. They will follow him. They will live for him. They'll live like him. Obedience flows out of a heart that loves and trusts Jesus. Obedience is outward evidence of a heart changed by God's love. It's the natural response to Jesus to a new heart that beats for him. So Listen, listen to me. Disciples of Jesus, listen to me. We are to be, we should be characterized by obedience. We love and obey Jesus just as Jesus loved and obeyed the Father. Because the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, prompting us to love and obey. And if he, Jesus, is in us and we are in Jesus, we are one with him, then we walk as he walked. We obey because we love and we increasingly love as we obey. Look what Jesus says. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I'll reveal myself to him. Well, hold on. So is God saying that he only, he only loves us when we're obedient? No, that's not what Jesus is getting at. This goes back to Jesus in you. 
the indwelling spirit, and you in Jesus, union with Christ. If by faith in Jesus, I'm in union with Jesus, then God loves me as much as he loves Jesus because I am one with Jesus. How incredible is that? We become objects of the Father's perfect love because he perfectly loves his Son. And we love the Father in return because of Jesus dwelling in us through the Spirit, granting us the desire, the capability to follow him in obedience. So obedience is a consequence of God's love, not a condition of our works to earn God's love. It's cause and effect. The cause is God's love. The effect is obedience. If you flip those around, folks, if you flip those around, I'm telling you that'll be hopeless, transactional, performance-based, dead religion. It will falter. Do this, do that to earn God's love. No, no. Religion says obey and God will love you. The gospel of grace says God loves you, so it's good to obey. Well, then Jesus' teaching is interrupted a fourth time in these chapters with a question. The first time was by Peter in chapter 13. Then early in chapter 14, it's Thomas. Then it's Philip. Now, look who it is. Who is it? Judas, not Iscariot. I love that little phrase. <laughs> like, can you imagine meeting him? Oh, hey, I heard you were one of the 12 disciples. Yeah, yeah, one of the 12. Wow. So you saw all the miracles of Jesus? Yeah, yeah. You heard all of his teachings? Yep, for three years I was with him. That's awesome. What's your name again? Judas. I'm sorry, did you say Judas? No, 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 not that Judas. You know what, just call me Thaddeus. So Judas, not Iscariot, is Judas, son of James, also known as Thaddeus in Mark chapter 3. And he asks a great question. He says, Lord, how will you reveal yourself to us but not to the world? I mean, they've seen Jesus do incredible miracles. They had awaited this powerful Jewish Messiah. And Judas is like, Lord, what are you talking about? Why not get into the limelight? Like, show off a little bit. Show your glory. Win the applause of a watching world. But again, that's not what Jesus is getting after here. So how does the Lord reveal himself to his followers but not to the world? Well, verses 23 and 24 give the answer. One word, love. Have you ever had an epiphany? Do you guys know what an epiphany is? So an epiphany, I always think about cartoons. Where a cartoon character like, gets an idea, and what happens right over their head? Bing! Light bulb. That's an epiphany. It's actually a Greek word. It comes from the Greek word epiphanes. Uh, epiphaneia, meaning appearance or manifestation. And it's the same root word here for reveal, for manifest. So when you have an epiphany, the light bulb comes on. It's a truth that was revealed to the person that makes you see clearly, you get it. The world has not had a spiritual epiphany. The world does not see Jesus. They don't know and understand Jesus. See, apart from God's love and God's spirit, the blinders are on. You ever talk to, uh, try to have a spiritual discussion with someone who doesn't know Jesus, is not a believer, and has no desire to be whatsoever? They're not seeking God. They don't grasp the beauty of Jesus. They don't delight in the profundity of Jesus. There's no delight for Jesus in their eyes. Augustine, the fourth century theologian, said it this way, Jesus was plainly visible to the carnal eyes of the world while manifest in the flesh, but the world saw not the word that lay hid in the flesh. It saw the man, but it didn't see God. It saw the covering, but not the divine being within. I thought this analogy was really, really good. It's, in fact, it's so good, I'm just going to 
read it to you. This is uh, by David Gooding in his book on the Gospel of John. How many of you have a pet dog at home or dogs? Wow, a lot of you. All right, you will enjoy this then. He says, your pet dog can understand quite a bit about you. Do you guys know that? When he sees you eating some beef, he understands perfectly what is going on. He understands the delightful sensations you're enjoying. For though he is a dog, he has a stomach like human beings have. And he knows what hunger is, the delights of satisfying that hunger with food. But show your dog a beautiful oil painting, and the dog will be completely bemused. Like, he will not be able to make any sense of the thing whatsoever. Oh, he may try to smell the painting. You know, he may try to lick it. He may try to chew on it if you let him. For they are the only means he has of getting to know things. He does not possess a human spirit such as you have. And therefore, he will never understand your picture. That part of your life which you enjoy by means of your human spirit forever are beyond the dog's limited experience of life. So then the artist, by his painting, reveals his thoughts and sense of beauty to you, but to the dog, though he can see the painting, he does not receive the artist's revelation. Here's what he says. Listen, church, in giving us the Holy Spirit, Christ has opened our eyes to see a world of meaning, significance, and delight to which the unregenerate man and woman are completely dead. They do not possess the kind of life that is necessary for the enjoyment of these things. That is why you and I can read words out of Scripture. And for you and me, they are living and vibrant. They're the very heartthrob of God. Whereas an unregenerate person can read those same words and they seem lifeless and dull. The world doesn't get it. Jesus is dimly lit to them. They don't see clearly because they don't have the spirit of Jesus in them. But a follower of Jesus, they've had their spiritual eyes opened. Like, I could see clearly now my sin is gone. I mean, it's, their eyes are open. They see Jesus. They love Jesus. They delight in Jesus. They delight in the things of Jesus. So the love of Jesus brings sight to believers. They know Jesus, they love him, and they're loved by him, and they love living according to his guidelines. They see the resurrected Jesus clearly as he revealed himself. So when Jesus talks about my words and the word of my fathers, he's talking about the word of God, scripture. So listen, for followers of Jesus, the internal Holy Spirit uses the external holy word to reveal Jesus and make him seen and known. And... The Father, look what he says. This is so astounding. This is so good. You see why this passage is so complex, so many layers? In verse uh, 23, Jesus says, and the Father and Son make their home with us, with him, with her. Jesus says that God will dwell with you, in you. Now, that certainly is true for all eternity. We talked about that a few weeks ago in the first part of this chapter. God dwells with mankind in our forever home with him. But now that's a reality right here, right now. God abides with us and in us. We'll talk about that in John 15. So as Bruce Milne says, our poor and needy hearts become the residence of the triune God. Again, I, I should be seeing some mouths agape. Maybe you guys just don't, it's too early for mouths agape. I don't know. Through the spirit, we dwell in God. That's you and Jesus. 
me and Jesus, and God dwells in us. That's Jesus in me, Jesus in you. It's why Ephesians 1.14 calls the Holy Spirit the down payment of our eternal glorious inheritance. If you bought a house, you had to put down a down payment. Now, and in that moment, when you put down a down payment, that house is yours. Kind of. Technically. The, the bank owns it, but the bank doesn't live there. If you have bank tellers using your shower, you have a problem. When you put a down payment down, it's your house, but yet not yet fully yours. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste of eternal things. He's a touch of heaven now. So in summary, the Spirit of Jesus in us prompts us to love Jesus and live for Jesus as we are loved by Jesus. Jesus.